If you would direct your attention to the passage this morning, it comes from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And let me ask you, the reading of God's Word, if you're able, if you would please stand. The passage can be found in your bulletins. You could follow along in your own Bibles if you so choose. This is the epistle to the Romans, chapter 1, beginning in the first verse. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures. Concerning his son, was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And now something strange, a congregational reading. Our goal as we go through the book of Romans is that we would memorize portions of the book together. So we're going to read these together. We're going to read this passage probably over the next six weeks, and I hope it will become second nature to you as we memorize Scripture together. So this is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Let's read this aloud together. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. Please be seated. And would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we come before you this morning. We thank you for the opportunity, the privilege that it is to look together at your word. We ask this morning as we begin looking at this epistle to the Romans, we ask our Father that you would guide us, that your spirit would be present, working in our hearts, that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be lifted up, that you, our Father, would be glorified, that we would be made more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We thank you, we honor you, we glorify you, we praise you, we worship you. You're a God who has not only made us, but has loved us and redeemed us. And so we ask this morning, work it out among our hearts, that you would be glorified among your people. We ask this In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. This morning we begin our work through the book of Romans. And it's daunting and exciting and who knows where it will go or end up. I think over the last 
two months, I've been telling you this will be a book that we'll be looking at for the next 18 months. And I have to tell you, I'm wrong. The more we've begun looking at Romans, the more I've realized we can't do it in 18 months. Uh, So it is a book we'll be looking at for two, maybe three years. Who knows how long it will take. The only thing I know is that we have to go slower. We must go slower. The more you read this book, the more you'll realize we have to slow down. Every word, every verse is so rich, it requires more of our attention. We must go slower through the book of Romans. And so here we are, about to set out on this journey through the book. I'm really excited. I want to begin, first of all, uh, with a a brief story I think will help illustrate the the point that I want to emphasize this morning. Um, Before I was married to my wife, both of us were students in college and and there was this, uh, she had these two roommates that she shared her first year of college with. And uh, one of her roommates came to our church with us. And we all went to the PCA church in town. There was only one at the time. And, uh, and, we, and we shared much in common. And her other roommate uh, didn't go to church with us. I don't know if she went to church or not or, or where she went to church. But their second semester of college, they decided that they wanted to do some things to sort of improve uh, their day-to-day life, and they decided that they were going to recite Scripture every morning together before they went to classes, right? It's a great idea. Anybody who sends their children to college only hopes that they're sitting in a dorm room brainstorming about how they can memorize Scripture together each morning. And so my wife and her roommate, who went to church with us, said, you know what we're going to do? First passage we're going to memorize, Romans chapter 8. There is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a great idea and a great place to begin. And so they went to their other roommates. said, we're going to begin by memorizing Romans 8. And their roommate said, a little bit perturbed, she said, of course, you Presbyterians, always talking about Romans. Romans this and Romans that. Of course, that's the first passage we're going to memorize, Romans. Let me ask you a question. What is the significance? What's the significance to the book of Romans? What's the significance to the book? We often do talk about Romans, don't we? It's a book that we often lean on, rely, rely upon. We often reference it when we're putting together our own theological convictions or ideas. If you look at most bumper stickers or tattoos of passages that people have on their arms, I'd say at least 50% of them come from the book of Romans. It seems to maintain an outsized influence in the Protestant church. Why is that? What's the significance of the epistle to the Romans? Well, that's one of the questions we're going to answer this morning. Okay, we're, we're looking at the first seven verses. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And here's what we're going to do. It's very simple. We're going to talk about the author of this book. We're going to talk about the recipients of this letter. And then we'll talk about the purpose of the epistle to the Romans. And when we talk about the purpose we will really see and discuss the significance of the epistle to the Romans, okay? If you're an outline person, there's an outline in the bulletin. You could certainly follow along. That's uh, maybe easier in some senses. You can see the three bullet points there on the white insert. As we begin thinking about the this epistle to the Romans. Let me just share, I mentioned to you the, outs- the outsized influence it maintains. Let me just share a few thoughts from church history. In case you're thinking, well, this might be just a, a Presbyterian thing, or maybe it's just an us thing, let me tell you a few of the voices from church history. 
Augustine, in his book Confessions, he speaks about being a heathen and then becoming a follower of Christ. And it was through the reading of this epistle to the Romans. He said, after reading the book, I neither wished nor needed to read anything further. It was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. Martin Luther, the epistle to the Romans is the true masterpiece of the New Testament. It's the very purest gospel which is well worth and deserving that a Christian man should not only learn it by heart, word for word, but also that he should daily deal with it as the daily bread of men's souls. It can never be too much or too well read or studied, and the more it is handled, the more precious it becomes, the better it tastes. Philip Melanchthon, another reformer, he called it a compendium of Christian doctrine. Thomas Drake's, the English Puritan, said it's the quintessence and perfection of all saving doctrine. Frederick Godet, the Swiss reformer, said every movement of revival in the history of the Christian church has been connected with the teachings that are set forth in the book of Romans. Modern church history, John Stott said, it was Paul's devastating exposure of the universal human sin and guilt which rescued me from the kind of superficial evangelism which is preoccupied only with people's felt needs. Tim Keller said, the letter to the Romans is a book that repeatedly changes the world by changing people. I could go on and on. Okay, so this morning we talk about the significance of this epistle to the Romans. But first I want to begin with the author of the book. Now look, verse 1, you see it there in verse 1, it's very simple, straightforward. Here's how verse 1 reads, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So there, the question, this is probably the easiest question in all the book of Romans, we'll answer for the next three years. Who's the author of Romans? There it is, Paul, an apostle. Before we begin talking about the background of the apostle Paul and how he gets to this place, let's first talk about the circumstance and the setting of the book, okay? This is the first picture I'm going to draw for you this morning. It's already partially drawn. This is a map of the Mediterranean Sea. Okay? And as we think about the Apostle Paul and his writing of this letter to the Romans, it will begin to help us if we can visualize what's going on and and why Paul writes this letter. So let's talk about Paul. If you take the book of Acts and you combine it together with Romans chapter 15, as Paul gets to the 15th chapter, he tells us, when and where and why he's writing the letter. We know then with these two things that Paul writes this letter to the Romans at the end of his third missionary journey, okay? So kind of rack your brain a little bit. You remember on the eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea, there's these important cities. Uh, Jerusalem is down here. Antioch, we'll put it in the northern part in Syria. And we know that Paul's missionary journeys always begin in Antioch. Now, the quick refresher is that he goes up here to some places in Asia Minor for his first missionary journey, returns back to Antioch, and that's like the first movement of the missionary Paul, sometime in the late 40s AD. Paul goes on his second missionary journey. He sets out from Antioch, and he goes not only to visit the churches he's planted in Asia Minor, but he ventures across the Aegean Sea into the Greek peninsula. And you remember now there's these cities over here like Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth down here and and Athens where the Apostle Paul goes and he begins spreading the word of God on the Greek peninsula. Amazing things happen on Paul's second missionary journey and he returns 
by way of Jerusalem. He comes back across the sea to Jerusalem. And then in the mid-50s A.D., Paul sets out on his third missionary journey. Okay? So if you're trying to put space and time, uh, 50s A.D., the Apostle Paul, now ministering roughly for 15 years, sets out from Antioch. He goes to the churches in Asia Minor, goes across the Aegean Sea from Philippi to Thessalonica, down to Corinth, eventually up to Athens. And, and as you read Romans 15, you realize that it's in Corinth and Athens that he writes to the church in Rome. Okay, so this is Italy. You're trying to find Italy on the Mediterranean Sea. Remember, it's that boot, right? It looks like a boot hanging down into the sea. Paul writes from Corinth to the church in Rome as he's on his way, journeying back eventually to Jerusalem. Now, you remember Paul's third missionary journey, one of the very important things that's happening. Paul is collecting an offering from the churches to return to Jerusalem and to help support the persecuted Christians in Jerusalem. So that's the context of the epistle to the Romans. He writes to them, and as you read Romans 15, you hear him say, I hope to come visit you on my journey to Spain. He intends to return to Jerusalem, eventually journey to Spain, which is on the western part of the Mediterranean Sea, and he hopes to stop in Rome to visit the church there. Okay? So that's what's happening with Paul as he writes this letter. Again, if you take those things together, you can uh, almost with great certainty conclude Paul writes this letter in the spring, likely of the year 58 AD, for those of you that love the numbers, okay? And Paul writes then to the church in Rome this epistle, which we now read as the epistle to the Romans. Now, let me tell you something. This is, it is never brought into question throughout the 2,000 years of the Christian church. No one's ever questioned the Pauline authorship of the epistle to the Romans, right? He writes the letter inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the church says, oh yeah, this is the word of God, and they begin to reproduce and to circulate it among the churches, and, and no one's ever questioned the Pauline authorship of this epistle. Always known that it's from Paul on the, on the Grecian peninsula, from Corinth and Athens, written to the church in Rome. Like, that's clear. We all know that. But let me tell you one thing I think is significant if you're going to rightly understand the book of Romans, okay? Because you're going to pick up the book of Romans and you're going to hear a gospel of grace and mercy. And the beauty of that won't be fully illustrated unless you understand the man who writes this book, okay? Because Paul was not always Saul. Remember, uh, Paul was not always Paul. He was Saul. Remember the history of this man. He tells us, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, circumcised on the eighth day from the tribe of Benjamin, according to the law, blameless. And if you look at the life of Saul, early in his, let's say, 20s and 30s, if you look at the life of Saul, you see a man who loved the law of God believed in a works righteousness, wanted to see justice, and desired to impose not only the law of God on his own heart, but on others around him. So much so that when Jesus Christ comes with a gospel of good news, bringing salvation through grace, Paul, who was Saul, says, no, no, no. That's not how this thing works. What about the law? And what about righteousness? 
So much so that he became the chief persecutor of Christ and of the church. Okay? And if you don't have that in mind and the conversion of Saul where he's journeying to Syria ready to persecute the church and the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ meets him on the road to Damascus and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And gets a hold of the heart of Saul and transforms his heart and makes him not to be a man who loves the law but a man who loves grace. If you don't understand that, you won't understand the beauty of the epistle to the Romans. Just think about it in this first line. I mean, the introduction of Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Think about this. This is the man who said, I hate Jesus. I will destroy the church. Now he describes himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. The man who said, I'm coming to find you Christians. I will ensure that this message ends. Now describes himself as an apostle, a messenger of Jesus Christ bearing the good news. Something happened to the Apostle Paul that transformed him. Listen, one of the greatest evidences in this world that we have that there's supernatural God doing supernatural work is that hearts who hate him and want nothing to do with him may be transformed by the work of the Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? When you read Romans, you have to be thinking, wow, this guy wrote this? the first thing. That's the author of this book. Second thing we talk about is the, re- the recipients of the letter. Again, this is uh, to the church in Rome. Here they are on the Italian peninsula, and we see Paul's address to them in verses 6 and 7. This is where he makes clear to whom he writes the letter. He says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, and that's like, um, if you haven't read Romans before, you've gotten an introduction in seven verses the way that Paul writes. It's, it's run on sentences and lots of things smushed together to try and capture complex thoughts. That's the long description of, this is to the church in Rome. Okay? That'd be the easy way to say it. Now, as we think about the church in Rome, let me give you a few of the characteristics of the church in Rome that are going to be important, again, for understanding this epistle to the Romans. First of all, okay, first observation, in Rome there is no apostolic foundation for the church, okay? There is no apostolic foundation. From everything we read in the New Testament, it is fairly clear that there has never been an apostle to visit Rome and to plant the church, okay, or to guide the church or to instruct the church. Now, why do I tell you that? That's significant. All of these other churches, okay, in Derby, in Lystra, in Iconium, in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Corinth, in Ephesus, all of these other churches have believers who have seen the Lord Jesus Christ. They have had apostles who have visited and planted churches. They have had appointed by the Apostle Paul or Philip or Peter or John, appointed elders and deacons to rule over the church, and they are well on their way to being beautifully organized churches in various cities. Rome doesn't have that, okay? No apostle has visited Rome to plant the church in Rome. So second observation we can make. You might ask the question, well, then how do we have a church there? Where does church come from? Okay? If you read through the book of Acts and you begin to kind of put the pieces together, 
you, you realize that the church in Rome has been formed by Christians who are just going and coming. They're going and coming. All roads lead to Rome. And we begin at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And at Pentecost, it says in Acts 2 that there were there Jews who were from Rome. And they were visiting for the celebration of the festival. And there when the Holy Spirit descends like, like tongues of fire and the people are converted and, and many of them become believers in that day, there were invariably some of those believers who returned to Rome and they began to meet together as believers. And so this is how the church started. You could say it's very organic. Like just Christians coming and going and they're like, okay, I guess we're going to have a church in Rome. And this is the way it's been, like 20 years in Rome. Okay, third observation, if you think about it then, that means that the church in Rome has started sometime between the late 30s and the, and, uh, the early 50s AD, but we know that when Paul writes to them, they are uh, a church. They are a body of believers in Rome who have separated themselves from the Jews, and they identify now as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourth observation I think is important as you think about the church in Rome. They have been through a lot of tumult. It has been a tumultuous existence for the church in Rome. I can think of like five major events between 40 AD and 54 AD that have rocked the Christian church in Rome in a major, major way. Okay, I'll give you one example. Uh, between the year 49 and, and 52 A.D., the emperor Claudius grows weary of the Jews in Rome and the Christians and their, the infighting that's going on. And that's because of the gospel. The gospel has now caused division. He grows weary of it and he expels them all from Rome. He kicks them out. And for years, they are unable to return to Rome. This is why, as you're reading through the book of Acts, Paul encounters uh, Priscilla and Aquila. They had been kicked out of Rome. They were believers in Rome. He sees them in Corinth, and, and their, their paths cross. It's, it's because of Claudius ejecting the, the Jews and the Christians out of Rome. And they've been persecuted, and there's been mass persecution. I mean, it's just been a tumultuous existence. So I tell you that because I want you to think about this. If you've been at mercy for any length of time, you realize that we kind of have this nomadic chaotic identity. And I don't mean that in a good way. I mean, it's just the way it's happened, not by choice, but by providence. And you think about just like the meeting places we've met at. And I know I've said this before, but uh, this is the last six years of life for us. Okay. So we're at Forest Middle School and things are going well, but then, then construction starts there and we go to Forest Elementary School and we go back to the middle school, but it's too small. So then we go to the high school and that's when COVID started. So the school said, no, churches can't be here. And so then we said, well, where are we going to go? And then we began meeting outside and, and Knights of Columbus, two services because we couldn't all fit in the field there. And, and then Knights of Columbus like, okay, it's getting too hot here. And what about the rain? So we moved to the YMCA, but they've got bike races and swim meets. And so then they say, sometimes you won't be here. And, and that's when you go to meet at the pavilion at the American Legion or, or down the hill. And we're always on the edge of our seat like, see you next week? <laughs> like a question, right? And we will see you, but... We're not sure where or how, okay? Um, and you know how that feels, don't you? It's a little bit unsettling. Again, it keeps you on the edge of your seat. If you can understand that, let me just ask you, try to put yourself in the shoes of the Christians in Rome. Can you imagine, like one Sunday we're meeting together for church, and the next Sunday everybody's kicked out of Rome, and then four years later we return, like, are we still at church? 
I mean, are we, do we meet together? Do we not meet together? Or is, it like, is it any of the same people? How do we get the word out? I don't know. Or, or, or like they're, they're meeting together for church and they've got like 20 families and then John and his family disappear one week, right? And they've, they've been fed to the, the lions or they've been, you know, put into the Colosseum or they've been jailed or imprisoned. Okay, I guess we just continue on. Think about how tumultuous it was for the church in Rome. And then one final observation. Let me tell you what this means, okay? Last observation. This is a church plant of all church plants. It's a church plant of all church plants. These other churches, again, they had organization. They had the apostles. They had deacons. They had elders. They had seen Jesus. I mean, there's lots that they had going for them. This is a church plant of all church plants in that there is no denomination. There is no money. There is no place to meet. There is no leaders. There is no, like, continuity from week to week. It is just a group of Christians, and they're there together like, we meet Sunday? Yeah, let's meet Sunday. Or do we meet Saturday? Uh, and what do we do when we meet together? It is an organic church plant. Now, let me tell you all of the observations about the church in Rome. Why is this important? By all human measures and standards, this church should die. Right? You talk about momentum. We, we were at the American Legion three weeks in the month of July and August. American Legion meeting outdoors. And I, every week I was like, oh, man, we're losing momentum. What if like, people think we're at the Y and they come to visit and, and we're not there and then they don't know where to go and they just don't, they don't come to church anymore? That's three weeks. By all human standards, the church in Rome should have been done. And yet God continued to grow the church. Isn't that amazing? God continues to grow the church. You can, you can throw out all your church planning books, all the, the like, okay, this is how it's done, and, and church planning 101, and this is how you grow a church, right? None of that mattered. If God desires to grow the church, God will grow the church. And he did it. It was amazing in Rome. So these are the people to whom Paul writes this letter. Now, I don't tell you that just because it's information. I tell you that because that will be so important for understanding why Romans is written the way that Romans is. And that leads us into the third point, the purpose of this book. Purpose of this book, if you want the longhand, the, the Pauline version, can be found from the end of verse 1 through verse 5. Here it is. Set apart for the gospel of God. The purpose of this book is the gospel of God. And this is what the gospel of God is. He promised it beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. It is concerning his son who is descended from David, according to the flesh, who is declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now this is the impact of the gospel, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's, that's what the epistle to the Romans is all about. Now, you're probably sitting there saying, okay, great, the epistle to the Romans is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, that's true, and, and so is every other book of the Bible, but why is it so significant? Why is this epistle have that sort of grand influence on the Protestant church? I want to explain that to you with a little story and and, uh, and my second picture of the day, so I'm going to spin the board around. Two for one today. Second picture. It's coming. 
But let me start with the story, okay? When I, uh, when I was a child and uh, growing up in my home, my father always worked with his hands. He was a carpenter, a contractor. He built things. And for some of the time, he worked for other people. But for most of the time, he worked for himself. And he had his own company. And he was very successful in, in doing that. And in the sort of early to mid-90s, uh, at the advent of reality television, um, there was a movement in reality TV to do like carpentry shows as well, okay? So uh, you could think of two examples. There was like Flip This House on A&E, uh, Extreme Home Makeover, where they, they're like, they build the house and they say, move that bus, and, and there was the house and it was built. And my, my, my dad um, absolutely hated those television shows. Hated him with a passion. He said it ruined his business. Uh, and, I, and this is how I explain it. He said, listen, I go out to make an estimate to people, and I tell them, all right, this kitchen's going to cost $75,000 to remodel. And the people are like, what? what are you talking about? On oh, Flip This House, they did it for $3,000. Uh, can't you use a little bit of pallet wood and antique furniture and you know, build a kitchen? And my dad hated that. Or, or he'd say, all right, this project is going to take three months. You know, you're going to have an addition, three months. And they'd be like, Ty Pennington can do it in one week. What's taking you so long, okay? My father hated that. It, it bugged him to no end. Now, listen, I tell you that because for me, that illustration will help you to understand the purpose and significance of the epistle to the Romans. Let me put it like this. In the Gospels, when we encounter Jesus Christ and we see him, what happens is almost overnight... The home is built, okay? The church, which is established in Christ Jesus, overnight is built, and we are left at the end of the gospel saying, uh, what just happened? Like, move that bus, and there it is. The church built in Jesus Christ. And let me explain this with more clarity so you understand what's going on in Romans, okay? And here's my picture this is the terrain. Let's begin with the terrain. The, the Bible says that the terrain of humanity is a broken, barren, desolate wasteland. That there is no hope. It is empty. It's burnt up. It, it has nothing. There is no green o oasis there. There's no refuge for us. There is nothing. This is the, the terrain or the landscape of humanity. We're going to see this in, in Romans, right? Romans 3. There is no one righteous. No, not one. All have fallen away. Okay? This is the terrain of human existence. And what the Bible tells us is that God doesn't leave us there. And, and he begins in the Old Testament scriptures. And you know what happens in the Old Testament? Here's the way I want to describe it. God begins to lay a foundation. This is my foundation. Okay? And uh, I'll make it like a brick. Well, that's not great brick. But there you go. That's my foundation. Okay? With a little bit of, uh, yeah, you'll get it. Um, God lays a foundation in the Old Testament, and what do I mean by that? I mean that he begins to build a story of hope and redemption, and the foundation says, okay, something's about to be built here. We get the idea, we see the picture of it, we see the outline, we know where you're going to be framing, but we don't know how this thing's coming together, okay? That's the work of God in the Old Testament scriptures, and we have two big failures when, when it relates to the Old Testament. Some people say, we don't need this. Knock it down. Right? And what happens when you knock the foundation down? The house begins to teeter and totter and it falls, okay? Some people say, like, this is the Jewish thing, okay? That's all we need, right? Just that foundation. And you could say to them, well, okay, without a roof, this thing's getting flooded, okay? 
this is begging something. It's promising something. It's foreshadowing something. This is the work of God in the Old Testament. We open up the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and what Jesus Christ begins to do is he begins to frame this beautiful house, okay? This is the church of God. And he begins to frame it in the Gospels, but it's only the framework of it, okay? Because what happens is you read through most of the life of Jesus, and he's teaching, and he's leading, and he's telling his disciples, and the disciples are like, okay, we get it, but only just barely, We kind of see the framework of the house that you're building, Jesus, but we have no idea how this is going to work out, all right? And, 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 And that's where we are through most of the Gospels until we get to the end, and what happens is the house begins to be built, and it comes together all of a sudden, and so I'm going to put some doors and windows and siding on this house. This house begun, uh, comes together almost suddenly, and how that happens is through the, the, the death of Jesus Christ and the pouring out of his blood and the breaking of his body and the, his burial in the ground, and then his rising from the grave and conquering death and conquering sin and walking among his people and then ascending to heaven and being seated on his throne and sending the Holy Spirit. When all of that happens, the church is established in Christ Jesus, and you say, whoa, that's beautiful, and yet... You get to the end of the Gospels and you still say, I don't quite get it. And it's fair. We, we, you can read at the end of Matthew and Jesus is ascending to heaven and he says, you know, go and make disciples. And you can think the disciples, they got it all figured out. But in reality, they were still like, okay, but what are we supposed to do? Like, um, how's this going to go? Okay? And they still lack clarity. I think you read the, uh, the Gospels, and if you think about all, um, all that God is doing in his son Christ Jesus, by the end of the Gospels, maybe we understand like 2% of it. And I don't say 1% because that seems too, too little, but 5% seems too much. Okay? So maybe we understand 2 or 3% of what God is doing. And if you're sitting there saying, like, what do you mean? I, I understand it all when I get to Matthew 28. Really? How does the blood of Christ satisfy the wrath of God in heaven? How does him doing this there have anything to do with eternity, right? And what happens to sin? Does our sin just go away? And if sin remains, how much sin remains? And then what do we do with that sin? And when does the Holy Spirit come? And how does the Holy Spirit come? And what does the Holy Spirit work look like? And who can be saved? And is it just all people or is it some people? And if it's just some people, what kind of people is it? And how do we receive salvation? Is it something we do? Is it something that we are? Is it something that we believe? And, and, and where is this all going? What's the end goal of it? And how are we adopted? And what does it mean we're justified? I mean, there's just, you can think of a thousand questions that, that have to be asked at the end of the Gospels. Here's why I tell you that. In the New Testament, every one of the epistles is working to clarify everything that happened in the Gospels. I'll give you some examples. Okay, here's Hebrews. What is the book of Hebrews? Hebrews tells us how the house fits together with the basement, right? The basement's the Old Testament. The house is the New Testament. Uh, The letter to the Hebrews says, here's how they fit together. And you're like, oh, that's so beautiful. It's amazing, okay? Ephesians. Ephesians is a book about unity. You know what Ephesians is telling us? Ephesians tells us it's not just one house and one foundation and they're separate or it's not two separate houses. This is one house built on one foundation, uh, think about this, Philippians. I mean, I, I love Philippians. And when you think about Philippians, in terms of this illustration, it's so beautiful. Philippians is a letter that says to the Philippian church, listen, the lights might be, might be out. It might be dark outside, 
but the lights are on in the house, okay? And Philippians tells us, why are the lights on in the house? Why is there hope? Even though the terrain looks terrible, why is there hope? And you think about some of the other, like Titus and, and James, these would say, we'd say, those are books about Christian living, but those are really books about how the rooms in the house should be arranged, right? And they should be orderly, and they should complement one another, and they should fit together in the whole. I mean, this is what's happening in the epistles. Now hear me, this is the importance of Romans, okay? Because Romans is different than every other epistle. Why? Because, again, all of these churches had the apostles and elders and deacons, and they had seen Jesus, and they had order, and the letters that Paul writes to Ephesus, and the letters that Paul writes to Philippi and to the Thessalonica, this was Paul saying, well, let's brush up a little bit. Okay, I know you understand, but let's clean it up a little bit. Let's talk about some of the details. And, oh, here's one thing you got wrong, or here's a particular problem. These are all brush-ups for churches that had a lot going for them. Romans is so different. That's why the letter to, to, to the Romans is so unique. Listen, if you want to think of a picture to understand Romans, here's what it is. It is a blueprint. I write it in big letters. It is a blueprint, okay? Romans is Paul's letter to the Roman church to say, listen, I'm going to start from the beginning, and I'm going to explain to you the whole construction process. And I'm going to begin with the brokenness of the terrain. And I'm going to tell you about the foundation. And I will describe to you the construction of this house from the ground up to the very peak of the roof. And I will tell you what's going on. And I will explain to you in detail. So you, the Roman church, who are wondering who are we and what are we doing here, you, the Roman church, might deeply and intimately understand all that Christ Jesus has done on your behalf. That's why Romans is so significant and so unique. It's the only book of the Bible which does this so thoroughly. Again, that's why Martin Luther said, hey, every Christian should memorize every word of the book of Romans and should feast on it every day. This is the blueprint of the redemptive work of God in this world. It is complete. And it's so clear and it's given for the church that we might see Christ Jesus more clearly. The epistle to the Romans is so significant. Hear this. It is so significant because it is the most complete diagnosis of the plague of man's sin. Right? Somebody will tell you, Romans 1 and 2, man, that's really harsh words Paul has. And that was just Paul being hard, but kind of got to ignore Romans 1 and 2. No. Romans 1 and 2, it seems so harsh because it's so clear. It's where the Apostle Paul says to the Roman church, I'm going to tell you about sin. I'm going to tell you how deep and wide and comprehensive and dangerous and how absolutely detrimental it is to us as human beings. And the book of Romans is the most glorious setting forth of the simple remedy of justification by faith in Christ apart from anything that we can do. The blueprint that is laid out for us that we will look at over the next, I don't know, two or three years is a blueprint with details and drawings and parts and inner workings and, and pictures and, and, and all of this like a, like a well-designed blueprint of the redemptive work of God, not of something that we must do or of something that we can do. It is a blueprint 
for the church of what God has done. And it's stunning and beautiful and miraculous and, and awesome and amazing. It is the greatest explanation of the good news. It's the greatest explanation of the good news that human eyes have ever seen, that human ears have ever heard. So whether you're ready or not, we are about to embark on the greatest exposition of the story of redemption in the history of humanity. And I'm excited, and I hope you are. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, not only that he came, but we thank you that you have now explained to us in this epistle to the Romans you have showed us and you have made clear what is sin and how broken are we and what does it mean to be dead in our trespasses and you have made clear to us the good news of Jesus Christ and justification by faith through grace. And you have shown us your mercy. And you have de declared to us the beauty of this good news. And you have told us about the conflict in our hearts. And we do the things we do not want to do. And the very things we want to do are the things which we do not do. And you have told us that you will always hold us and never let us go, that nothing in all of creation can separate us from your love. And you will show us this plan that you had from before the foundation of the earth to save us because you loved us. And you will tell us then how we ought to live as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask, Lord God, would you help us to persevere to not grow weary or bored with your word, but each day and every week as we come back to this epistle, that our affections would be renewed for the grace that we've received in the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you and we thank you. And we ask our Father that you would be glorified in all that we say and do. In Jesus Christ's name we ask all of this. Amen.